Welcome to the final edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today I have an interview with cinematographer Anthony Richmond. Mr. Richmond has photographed Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and Candyman. It was my intention to show Don't Look Now, however, due to the pandemic, we've canceled the movies at Maine. However, please enjoy this interview I did with Mr. Richmond. Film critic Harlan Kennedy once wrote, Nicholas Rogue talks in the same style that he makes films, with a restless, fragmented, quicksilver passion. There is no straight line of thought in his talk or in his work, rather a magnetic field in which bits and pieces fly around a firm center. He won't pinpoint the center for you. You have to find it yourself. Do you agree with this statement? And if you do, uh, how would you two work together? Well, I would agree with the statement probably as much for The Man Who Fell to Earth. But I don't think I would agree with that statement for Don't Look Now. I mean, um, you know, that, that is Nick's most accessible movie to people, you know, um, but I mean, The Man Who Fell to Earth is a very bizarre, very strange, fragmented movie that people either absolutely love or hate. So I'd agree to it in, in that sense, but not so much all of his movies, you know, if, that, if that's an answer for you. Yeah. You've had a long collaboration with director Nicholas Rowe. Could you discuss how it got started? Well, yeah, it was around about um, 1960. I was a clapper boy or a second assistant cameraman and went out to uh, Israel to work on a movie called Judith, a big picture with Peter Finch and Sophie Loren, which was directed by Delbert Mann, I think, and um, John Wilcox was the DP, uh, British DP, and he took me on it. And Nick Rogue was shooting the, sort of shooting and directing the second unit. And I gravitated towards Nick and his crew. They were a wild bunch. So, I mean, I spent most of my spare time with them. And then towards the end of the movie, <coughs> excuse me, um, there was about another six weeks to go. Nick said, um, I'm leaving the movie. I'm going on to another film. I can't tell you what it is, but I, and I can't take my operator and focus puller who were in Israel with me but I'm definitely going to take you whatever happens. And that turned out to be Dr. Shivaga for David Lee. So we went out and did, did that. So that was really the first time I worked as part of Nick's crew. Um, and sadly, after a month, um, Nick was sort of excused duties and Freddie Young took over. And I, um, I, in those days, you, as a part of a camera crew, you work for the cinematographer, the DP. Um, so, and if the DP left or die or something, no, you would leave with him. And I said to Nick, I'm going to leave. He said, no, you've got to stay on to be good for your career. So I did stay on. And um, it was very interesting because I really didn't like David Lean at all. Um, because he fired Nick. Um, and someone told him that. And he went out of his way to be nice to me. And I learned more about filmmaking from David Lean than I think I've learned from anybody. Um, so that, that was wonderful. But then once again, towards the end of that movie, um, after we'd been shooting for 52 weeks, I was running around the grid um, trying to get something for Freddie Young, who was the DP. And a uh, car was during the day, and a car was... Um, I, mean, I, could, I could do plenty of that sort of stuff because we didn't do many shots a day, you know, in Chicago. So uh, there was a honking of a horn behind me, and it looked around, it was Nick Rowe, he used to follow me, and I followed him. He went back to the apartment building where I strange enough I did. He was there, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to do... Um, 
if anything happened the way before, why don't you come on? So I left Chicago with a week to go and joined them. Um, you kind of funny thing happened the way before. And then when we came back to England, and um, I worked with him as his assistant on Fahrenheit 451, and he made me a focus puller on um, Casino Royal, the one with Woody Allen, and then on Far From the Madding Crowd with John Stesney's director. And then strange enough, after that movie with John Stesney, they gave me my break as a cinematographer, not Nick. You were backing up. You were on Zhivago. Um, I'm curious, well, why was Nicholas Rogue replaced on that movie? Well, um, basically, David Lean had no sense of humor, unless he was making a joke. And Nick had a great sense of humor. And also, um, David didn't like the idea of anybody saying to him, you know, maybe if we move the camera over here a little bit or we put a different lens on it, it might be a better shot. David didn't like that. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of friction there. And that... Um, and then he couldn't take that, you know, so he was replaced. Okay, and you were talking about you learned a lot Could you, from David Link. Could you give, like, an example of what you learned? Well, I mean, everything, you know, every single, as a cinematographer, I mean, learning as a cinematographer, I'm a director, every single image, every single frame of film had to be perfect for David Lee. Um, a lot of thought went into everything. Um and yes, that, you know, he was a hard taskmaster. He was tough on his crew, all crews. But I mean, it had to be his way or the highway. But listen, look at the movie he's made. He's a wonderful, wonderful filmmaker. Um, and I did learn a lot from him. I mean, um, you know, I learned a lot about composition. I learned a lot about lighting from Freddie Young, who was um, the DP on that movie. And also, in those days, you know, we didn't work as fast as we work now. I mean, and then they took me under their wing and I could ask them questions. It was a, just a wonderful, I mean, what a wonderful experience, you know. And it really helped me in my career. Um, and I learned a lot watching Freddie work with David and how they worked together as a team. And then, you know, after we came back to London, I, we pulled focus, and I pulled focus on Path of the Man in Craftsick. Nick went off to uh, Hollywood to do um, Ian the Arch Patchouli, which did Lester directed. And obviously I couldn't go with him assistant, he wouldn't take an assistant to America. And I then, John asked me to do a couple of extra shots John wanted on Far From the Madding Crowd. And then I went down to the West Coast in, in England and did those with him. And they, they all, they were all exterior, nothing special, but he liked them. And then that six-day war in Israel started in, in, um, in June 67. And John was going out with Wolf Mankovich to make a documentary. And he asked me to shoot it. So that was the first thing I ever shot. So it was John that gave me my break. And then I, when I came back, I was a DP, and then I had another big break. I did a movie for Basil Dean called Anyone I Laugh, um, which was the first big feature I did in 1967. And then I went back with Nick around about 1970. I went out and shot um, the second unit of Walkabout for him. I have to say, that was uh, I was full of trepidation there because you know, Nick was a good DP, and he left me alone. And he just said, I'm going to give you a couple of words of wisdom, and it's up to you. Just don't be frightened of the dark. And that was the best thing he ever could ever say to me because Venice at night is very, very dark and we made use of the darkness and shadows. Okay. You mentioned a little before you worked on Fahrenheit 451, which is the only English-language film of director Francois Truffaut. And Nick Rogue, as you said, was the director of photography and you worked on that movie. And I've read, and I don't know if this is true, that Nicholas Rogue had a strong influence on that movie, like meaning he actually helped co-direct it. Is there any truth to that? No, no, he didn't help co-direct it at all. 
Okay. Francois was wonderful. He was a wonderful man, a very gentle, kind man, and um, he knew exactly what he wanted. Okay. I mean, they might they might talk about different images and things like that, but he certainly did not co-direct that movie. Okay. Uh, Don't Look Now was filmed in Venice, and Nicholas Rogue, I think, described it as a city of waterways. And what was the most difficult aspect of making that movie? Well, everything was difficult, quite frankly. I mean, first of all, it was a very low-budget movie, and we shot it very quickly. We did we did the four days in England, you know, the farm with the little kid drowned and the horses and things like that. And the school, we did all that in England for the first four days, just before Christmas. We struck very, very lucky there because we had that, you know, though it was cold, we had that wonderful, very low, watery sunlight, which was just perfect for the scene. And then we went out to Venice um, just after the New Year, and we prepped for a week, and then we started shooting in February. Venice is the hard... I've shot all over the world. I've shot in jungles. I've shot in deserts. Venice is, you know, the hardest place I've ever worked in, basically because there's no trucks. Everything's got to go by boat. So that in itself uh, sorts a problem in so much as, you know, you might be shooting in some of those big buildings, and we had the arc lamps going, and something would all go dark, and everybody would be running around. And what would happen is they'd, they'd reach the limit where they'd have to stop shooting for half an hour and move the barges with the equipment and the general either into a canal or out of a canal before the tide came. And that's what, otherwise, they wouldn't get it out for 24 hours. That's what was, it was those sort of things. And we had a complete Italian crew um, who didn't speak English, just Nick, Rogue, and I, and then um, a focus group I took from London. And then we shot remarkable for that movie. We showed it in six and a half day weeks. We work uh, for four or five hours on a Saturday morning. Um, do you have a favorite moment in Don't Look Now that you photographed that, man, I really nailed it? Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I think for Don't Look Now, it's the only film we've ever worked on. Um, you know, everything starts out to be really good and you hope it's going to be great. But you're never totally sure, you know, how a movie's going to turn out because um, you're so close to it. But I knew that after we'd been shooting Don't Look Now for about a week, that this was going to be something special. I think the stuff I'm very proud of is the um, the night scenes in Venice because they are really, really hard to do. I mean, we didn't have massive condors like they do now. Um, you had to get lamps across the canal and the guys would put big ladders across the canals and go up and clip them to buildings. And I think that the use of the, the shadows there was wonderful. And it was hard. I think we did a good job. You know, I, I really do. I, I also, I think that um, the other scene that for me was pretty impressive was the, the scene at the beginning when the little girl drowned. I mean, that was pretty, that was pretty wild to shoot. I mean, to, you know, to have that little girl go under the water like that. I got into the lake with a camera with Donald when he went under, and then we went to a little zinc tank we had in the barn and filled it full of water on that farm and then we got in and uh, the little girl went underwater and Donald lifted her out and that was that was pretty emotional that um, but I think that uh, the, the wonderful thing about that look now is it's, it, I think it's a whole mixed movie it's very accessible um, and it's a wonderful movie it's a really one nothing to do with me doing it but it's a wonderful movie it's a great story based on Daphne de Maurier's short story. Edward Bones had a great script. I think the other extraordinary thing that I was very impressed with was the shooting of the love scene. I mean, um, 
that's still considered by today's standards to be one of the best love scenes ever shot. You know, love scenes are really hard to do. Typical James Bond-type love scene, you know, tracking across the floor with some underwear and moving up to the bed and going along a leg and seeing the woman there with James Bond, that sort of stuff. Why this was so good? Because he wasn't put in for any form of titillation. It's an integral part of the story, and that makes a huge difference. It's the first time they've made love um, since the child died. And what had happened these things of, of shooting a love scene is you've got to have the director and cinematographer have got to have the trust of the actors. Because although you're, um, you know, this, your people say that you made love on the screen, but they didn't. They really did not. There were only five people in the room. There was Nick sitting back in a chair in a suite in a hotel. We, what had happened was we used the Balguamal Hotel in Venice for the apartment where they were living whilst in Venice. And we shot the bathroom scene the day before. And Nick said, take a camera home tonight and stop. We're going to come back and we're going to shoot the love scene tomorrow, but no one's going to know. Even the producer didn't know we shot that scene. So we went into the, the bedroom about 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the Saturday. Um, I put four little lights around the room, um, or three little lights around the room. And um, Nick gave me one setup he wanted, which was when um, Donald rolls her over and then opens her dressing gown and starts kissing her face and goes down past her breast and he wanted him to go out of shot. And when he went out of shot, I was to, to move in over Donald, who was on the floor somewhere but, but by me, into a nice close-up with Julie, which I did. And then he just said, keep shooting. And we just shot. We shot in about 30 minutes. We went in, in two rolls of film, which is it's eight minutes of film, um, with a very noisy camera going like a machine gun and Harry Flex 2C, no sync sound. And I think that the brilliance of that scene is, was not scripted. It's what Nick did in the cutting room. was sort of them making love while they're getting dressed. I and mean, I just think that was absolutely brilliant. And this was a good scene. And why you need the trust of the actor is that when you're filming, you know, we don't have hard masks. We film, we're composing to 185, but we're filming Academy, which is much more on the top and bottom. So you're going to see much more shot than you actually see. We'll trust the director not to use those things. So, you know, when you're cutting... When you're cutting just above the pubis, you're seeing everything below that. Um, and there was great trust there with Julie. I mean, both Nick and I had worked on four movies with Julie. Um, Chivago, Fahrenheit 451, and Far From the Manning Crowd. And now this, so there was a lot of friendship there. And Donald was very easy to work with. Um, so it all worked out very well. Uh, the score for Don't Look Now was done by Pinio Donaggio, and Mr. Donaggio also wrote the score to... Deja Vu, a movie you directed. Could you discuss the... That is correct. Yeah, Don't Look Now, the first movie, um, you know, Daniel Scott, I think he was in the um, Venice School of Music. And then when uh, the movie I directed, I wanted him to do that, and he was ready available and did it. Um, He's wonderful, you know, Daniel. In fact, the production designer on uh, Don't Look Now was um, part of the art, the teacher or the chair of the art school in Venice. Wonderful people, wonderful people. Okay, let's see. Uh, Nicholas Rogue also documented the 1971 Glastonbury Fair, and you were one of the four cinematographers of the movie, including the director, Nicholas Rogue. And what were your responsibilities on that documentary? Well, I was really the DP on that. I mean, we, we went down, um, it, was all, it was all put together really quickly. We went down with about four cameras and some crew, 
and we just wandered around and shot. I mean, we, you know, I wandered around. We had we had other crews just you know cameras just wandering around shooting. Nick and I we went together, and you know we we just shot it. I mean, it's just an amazing example. You know, it was wonderful. It was a really bad weather. There was a lot of mud and rain there, but um, and it was really weird because um, you know they built that pyramid stage there. What's his name? The guy that wrote View of Atlantis, John Michel. Um, he reckoned if you put a wherever they built that stage, if you put a, a drill down, electric drill down one side and kept drilling through the earth, he'd come out in the great tour of been in the tomb of Giza or something like that. There were a lot of there was a lot of craziness going on there. There was a lot of diviners, just a lot of crazy people. It was, it was really quite wonderful. It was great. You know, it was wonderful. That was the first big uh, outdoor concert in England, I think, you know, or anything like that. Okay, I read that David Bowie performed at that concert, but he's not in the documentary. Uh, why was? No, he didn't. I don't, I don't think he performed when we were there. Yeah, it's not in the. He might have performed in later years. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the big the big star when we were there was Melanie. Yeah. Okay, you were also the cinematographer on Let It Be, and this film includes the uh, last public performance of the Beatles, and the concert took place on the rooftop of the Apple Building. Uh, what was the difficulties you had in filming that scene? Well, there was no difficulties, really. What had happened was, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg directed the movie, and I'd worked with him prior on um, on uh, the Rock and Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which we shot on tape. So I had to use um, television operators because it was a pedestal cameras. And I guess in those terms, I would have been considered more by those operators as a lighting engineer and not as a director of photography. And they didn't like me getting involved in how they should do their setups, but I went one out in the end. So when Michael asked me to do Let It Be, it was going to be a spectacular for ABC. And he said, I said, are going to shoot it on, on tape or film? He said, I'm going to do it on tape. I said, I don't want to do it. I mean, we're, we're great friends, Mike. And then a couple of weeks later, Dennis O'Dell, who was a producer that I knew, who'd taken over running of Apple Films, called me and said, the boys down in Twickenham Studios because Ringo Starr had just finished The Magic Christian, which they produced. And they've got an empty stage, and they're going to rehearse for this spectacular. Why don't you go grab a couple of cameras and come down and just shoot it, and we'll make a documentary or something like that, which I did. And then towards the end, and obviously Michael would come in, Lindsay Hogg, the director, because he would come in every other day and also. And then, um, you know, there were many discussions about how they were going to end this, what they were going to do for their concert. And John Lennon said to me, what's all that stuff like your shooting? I said, well, it's pretty good. He said, well, let's uh, print some up and see it. So I, I've got some prints done, and they liked that the next day. And Lennon said, I don't know, what are we going to do? So then um, Paul McCartney wanted to shoot the concert in um, in Rome, and they couldn't do that. George Harrison wanted to shoot in, uh, an Indian reservation in Lake Tahoe. Ringo wanted to shoot it going across the Atlantic on the QE2. So that sparked one. just a well, I thought maybe I will do it on tape after that. And then there was a lot of banter and something we decided we'd just, we'd just finish it and we'd shoot in two days' time a concert on the roof, which we did. So I got 16 cameras, 16 crewmen all over the place, all over London, some in the streets below, some on the rooftops, and about six cameras on, on the roof. And then we, we just did it. And it was really amazing. I mean, the all parts of London just standstill. It was a big, powerful amplifier. Unfortunately... The people standing in the streets below, they couldn't see over the roof. You know, the people were climbing out of office. Well, you see the film climbing out of office. But you know, we've um, 
Last year, we did a, um, a complete 4K restoration of Let It Be for the original name. I'm just waiting to color correct that. And then on September, I think it's September the 4th, there's what they call the, so, the so-called unseen footage. All, that's all the, all the stuff that wasn't used in Let It Be, which, of course, I shot. So Danny Boyle was going to do something with that. And um, he had to pull out because of a, a, a conflict. And Peter Jackson was in the office. And he said, God, I mean, he was a big Beatles fan. He said, I want to do that. I want to do that. So what has happened is he's taken that, like, uh, 55 hours of unseen footage and made an incredible documentary called Get Back, which is going to be aired, um, be released on September the 4th. Uh, and that's really amazing. But that's all the footage I shot. And then Let It Be will be released as a film in the cinemas next year. Okay. I just wanted to ask... Yeah, while filming Let It Be, did you get this sense that this was the end of the group? Very much so. Very much so. You could see there was a lot of animosity there. Yeah, very much so. There were difficult times when we were on the stage. I mean, Lennon was there with uh, Yoko, and Paul was there with Andreessen, and they didn't like each other, and, you know, Paul didn't like, you know. And then, and then what happened is after we did the concert on the roof, we then went back to that studio in the same building and shot for a further three days just laying some tracks down. And there was a lot of animosity there, you know. And there's a lot of good stuff in the outtakes that you're going to see on, on um, Jackson's documentary. But yeah, yeah, you, could, you knew that was the end. Time had, the time had come, you know. Okay, uh, at one time Nicholas Rogue was going to direct Flash Gordon. Did he ever discuss his version of the movie, what he was going to do with it, with you? Well, yeah, he did, because I was going to shoot it. Oh. But then... Um, but then he got fired off that before he even went into pre-production. He might not be Ian Dino had a big row about something. You know, the renters. Okay. I have to ask you about a favorite movie moment, and that's the title credit sequence to Candyman, the helicopter shot with the overview of Chicago, and you've got Philip Glass's score, and it just sets the tone to that whole movie. Could you discuss the inspiration about how you achieved this? Yeah, we did with Bernard Rose. Yeah, Bernard Rose and I were, I like Bernard. We worked very closely together and we're still great friends. But I mean, we did a, a, you know, we had a helicopter with a pod, not a tire mount hanging out the side, so we could shoot straight down. And I just think those images are, are pretty, pretty darn amazing, you know. We had a perfect day and the way we pick it all up, um, just wonderful. Candyman was a great movie. I love Candyman. I just wanted to ask you about another scene in Nick Rogue, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and it's, the final shot when the waiter says, I think Mr. Newton has had enough, and Nathan Bryce replies, I think maybe he has. And the character Newton, played by David Bowie, just bows his head, and all you see is the fedora and the two ferns in the black ground blowing in the wind And it, as the credits roll. It's not a freeze frame. I love that shot. Could you just discuss it? Yeah, we just he bent down. We just tracked him. He wanted to track him the fedora. And it is a great show. It's a great ending. I mean, I love that movie. I mean, I love that movie. When it, um, when it was first released here, it got terrible reviews. And then the releasing company, which I think was, I forget who that was, they cut it to shreds, you know. And then we cut it for the, for the Blu-ray. And it became a, a, sort of a cult classic. You know? Yes, it has. I mean, and, and David, David Bowie wasn't Nick's first choice to play that role. The first choice was Michael Crichton, the author. Because huh. um, Nick, Nick always felt he looked like an alien, but he was about 
six or eight tall and really skinny. And Michael was going to do it. And he acted the event a few times before. And then he bailed out at the last minute because uh, he just didn't want to do it. So what had happened was it looked like the movie was going to fall to pieces. And um, Nick had just seen a BBC omnibus documentary called Crack Actor about David Bowie, who had just come off of years of alcohol and drug abuse. You know, it was a very bizarre documentary. And he managed to get to see David. And he sort of talked David into doing it. And I don't think there's another actor then or today that could play that role. I mean, David Bowie was cut for that role. He was fantastic in the movie. But one of the brilliant things Nick did is a lot of times when he was shooting scenes, he didn't give David much direction or any direction. And you could see that on the set that David was barely holding things together. You know, he'd have his ups and downs. But he was wonderful. He was wonderful. And that was a, that was a very happy experience that movie. Right. Just going back early in your career, you worked at Hammer Studios, and was this a good training ground? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I worked on some of those wonderful old Hammer horrors, you know, the Frankenstein movies and the Dracula movies and the Devil Ship Pirates, and they were wonderful. I mean, it was a, it was great. It was a small studio um, just outside London on the, on the banks of the River Thames. And it was like a family business, you know, just fabulous, fabulous. You know, we, we didn't work long hours and we just got everything done. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I, I've been very lucky in my career, I, I, you know, basically because I started so long ago that um, it's almost impossible now to ask anybody anything because the hours they work, the long hours, we never did long hours. And there was plenty of time to do shots. You could watch and you could learn, you know. And I learned from various DPs that took me under their wing and, took from each of those DPs what knowledge I wanted, you know. Okay. I just wanted to say, Mr. Richmond, thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me. I appreciate it. Not at all. Not at all. All right, Mike. Thank you, sir. I would like to thank Mr. Richmond for granting me the interview. I said in my introduction that this would be my final interview. I'm retiring this year, and I want to thank the people who listened, and I would like to thank all my guests who agreed to appear on my podcast. I would like to thank the audiovisual specialist who handled the technical aspects of the podcast, Clint Tatum, Michael Lusk, and Forrest Eagle. Also, I must thank my boss for the past 19 years, Crystal Dean, whose invaluable assistance and support helped make the podcast possible. I would like to thank Crystal for tolerating me for the past 19 years. I knew I had a good boss when I loaned her my copy of Miss 45, and she liked it. And final, I would like to quote Jean Cocteau, long live the young muse cinema, for she possesses the mysteries of a dream and allows the unreal to become real. Today's music is from Don't Look Now by Pinio DiNaggio. <laughs>